Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. And welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Gina Coombe, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Tyson Davis. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Uh, Today, we have Kelly Burns in the booth with us. Kelly, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you study? Hi. Well, thanks for having me today. Uh, As I said, my name's Kelly, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student in social psychology, And uh, my lab typically studies prejudice and discrimination. Uh, Specifically, I look at national identity and how that's related to your attitudes toward immigrants. Interesting. So have you you gotten any results? Like, um, and what I mean by that is, are Canadians more prone to be uh, kind of uh, view immigrants negatively or positively or anything in between? Well... The way we look at it in research is there's typically this idea that there's two different kinds of national identity. There's a more positive kind, which we typically talk about as patriotism, and there's a more negative kind, which we typically talk about as nationalism, but it also can be, you know, chauvinism, jingoism, things like that. And the idea is that patriotism is like, you know, I love my country. It's this positive thing, and it looks at, uh, it's related to things like being civically involved and feeling a unity for, for people in the country. Whereas nationalism is typically related to things like discrimination toward groups you're not a part of, in this case, immigrants. And that is what we do find. We find that people who are higher on this negative patriotism, which is nationalism, tend to have more negative attitudes toward immigrants. So then um, how do you test for the two types of patriotism, nationalism? Well, typically in the past, they've been treated as individual difference variables. And what I mean by that is they're treated as more like like personality variables. So some people are higher on one or lower on the other. Uh, but I wanted to see if we could like manipulate that, if we could get people to change their levels of nationalism and patriotism using a, a writing prompt. So what I did is I had participants come in to the lab and I gave them this writing prompt. I had them either write about something they loved about Canada and that was supposed to be the patriotism condition, trying to elicit this, pa- this love of Canada. Uh, or I had people come in and write about how Canada was better than the U.S. Because something I didn't say earlier is the main difference between patriotism and nationalism is that nationalism has this sort of superiority complex. It's this idea that my country is not only great, but it's better than your country. And so I was trying to elicit that using these writing prompts. And then after that, I asked them how they felt about immigrants, and I wanted to see if that differed depending on which condition they were in. So, so far, did the two groups differ by any chance? Uh, Yeah, we did find that when you have to write about why Canada is better than another country, so again, you're sort of eliciting the superiority thing, you have lower just general attitudes toward immigrants. So we give them a feeling thermometer, so it basically says, you know, from from zero to 100, how do you feel about immigrants? And they report liking immigrants less. Uh, they also per- report having more contempt for immigrants and less admiration. And also, interestingly, they report feeling more competition between immigrants uh, and, like, the rest of Canada. Because an important thing in prejudice research is that uh, people tend to not like groups when they feel like they're in competition for resources. So that was something we wanted to look at. So did... Like one individual, do they do both the patriotism versus nationalism? Or? No, in this case, it was between subjects. So some people got the right about what you love about Canada, and some people got the right about how Canada is better than the U.S. 
do you think it would change if one person did both? I think that's the idea. That's sort of, I mean, that was why we wanted to test because, again, when it was treated as an individual difference variable, we assumed that some people would be high on one and not the other. But I was thinking if we test it like, like the way we did, we might be able to get people, regardless of how they'd score on these measures, we might get them to be able to be you know, higher on patriotism or lower on nationalism or whatever. So um, did you at all account for, like, so, you know, I love Canada, but I, think I wouldn't identify as a nationalist. If I were to do this nationalist um, writing prompt, uh, would, would that, through your research, did you see that elicit the, the more prejudiced behaviors out of me? Yeah, I mean, it's care- we need to be careful when we talk about it because we're not exactly studying prejudice. What we're seeing here is differences, so relative differences. So, for example, people's attitudes were relatively lower, but they were still generally positive. So that's important to remember. We're not seeing, like, outright contempt or really negative attitudes. We're just seeing relative differences. But they do significantly differ according to the, to the statistics. So so maybe because Canada is such a multicultural country, they might be a little bit more or less neutral about the, uh, like, immigrants in general. How do you feel if you were to do the study in a different country? Do you think it would change? Well, I actually did do this study in a different country. I did a final sample in the U.S. And uh, we find a similar pattern. Of course, it's a little stronger in the U.S. And interestingly, there's a stronger relationship because nationalism and patriotism are statistically related. They're similar constructs, but they're different. But we find that they're even more related in the U.S. So, there's a, a more of a connection between patriotism and this superiority in the states than there is in Canada. So, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Here. No. Okay. Uh, so uh, one question I did have is like, um, how did you like nuance between say immigrants or a general other? Like Canada is a really regionalized country. And I could see that if you try to say why, can- if you did like same thing, like why is Canada better than Quebec? And you try to get them in, like, I can imagine you could, do that another way. So, like, um, I don't know, how do you, like, difference between just, like, a generalized other and, like, spe- immigrants specifically? So, I mean, for everything, we, we used the target immigrant. So it was basically just a label immigrant. So we asked, you know, how do you feel about immigrants? How do you feel about this particular group of people? And But we did actually look at other groups. I haven't done much analyzing of that data because it wasn't quite as, the, the effects weren't quite as pronounced. But I did find in one study that when you thought about Canada, you actually did have less positive attitudes towards French Canadians as well. As a French Canadian, it makes me a little bit sad. It's, if I could say something, it's in social psychology, we talk a lot about this idea of the in-group and the out-group. So as members of, the in-group is a group that you're a part of, and a out-group is any group that you're not a part of. And we tend to prefer the groups that we're a part of and not like the groups that we're not a part of as much. So what, what that means, though, is you can sort of manipulate the way you think. And if you change the group that you're sort of focusing on, your reference group, you can sort of change attitudes that way as well. So one way people talk about reducing prejudice is by having this idea of a common in-group. So if I were to look at, you know, Ang- Anglophone Canada versus Francophone Canada, that would be looking at, you know, in-groups versus out-groups. But then if I sort of broaden that group to make it Canada, all of Canada, I'm bringing everyone into this common in-group. Oh, yeah. The only reason I ask this is, like, uh, as Gina said, like, there's this idea that Canada's more uh, multicultural, but that's actually, like, a very 
like Ontario folk is very urban, um, maybe a bit of BC phenomenon. There's like large regions of the country where... Yeah, go to Newfoundland and have a look around <laughs> and try to find some other cultures. There's plenty of diversity in wildlife, but no. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, well, of course, I mean, with many psychology studies, we use the participants we have. And so most of the participants in these studies were university students here at Western. So the diversity of the sample isn't that great. So yes, of course, if we were to do this anywhere else, it, we would probably find different results. Do you think it would be affected by the age group, maybe? It might be. There's a lot of things that it could be affected by. I mean, we look at things like political ideology. We look at things like, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that might play a f role in this. Are there any sex differences? You know, I haven't really looked. I have no reason to expect sex differences, but I haven't really looked. Interesting. I would imagine, uh, just to chime in on Tristan's point a little bit, that if you go to uh, some of the more rural places in Canada, this is strictly hypothetical. I have no idea what I'm talking about in reality, but I would imagine that those uh, rural areas with a very white population would be a little uh, less welcoming of immigrants, I would imagine. Yeah. I think that's probably very true. They have less exposure to other groups, so that in, that in-group, out-group, so that, that othering is even more pronounced there. So. Yeah, just like while we blew the social psychology doors wide open here, it's just like there's so much potential for research because Canada is just so different in different places. And it's actually something that that doesn't get a lot of acknowledgement in like the international community. And so like um, it'd be really, I mean, yeah, a lot of work cut out there. <laughs> it's really interesting because I started this work when I was doing my master's in the States. I'm from, I'm from the States. And so the the patterns we find are much more pronounced in the states there's much more i became interested in this work because after 9-11 i was thinking about how we became very patriotic sort of unbelievably so but also at the same time we sort of took on this islamophobia and this uh sort of you know fear of people who are different than us and i wondered if there was a connection and it's much more pronounced in the states and so when i decided to continue studying that i didn't realize things were going to look so different when i moved to canada but uh, the idea that multiculturalism is so ingrained in the fabric of what it means to be Canadian, I think, is making my results complicated. <laughs> yes, and I would imagine some regional disparity as well in the U.S. Oh, I'm sure. I'm I would sure. just I would just think the North and the South would be completely different in yeah. terms of these studies. I'm sure that's true. Yeah, Vermont and Arkansas, I can imagine, have very different <laughs> ideas towards. <laughs> or even just, like, location. Like, um, the relationship between um, uh, between... I guess what we call native and immigrant or uh, something like that is very different in, say, like a place like New York or like a region like the American Southwest, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, just moving forward, I, I'm really interested in this uh, concept of prejudice and how prejudice is made. And um, Is there like uh, some like big theories you're tapping into for this work that um, say like uh, what you're building upon? Um, well, we're really, like I said, there's a lot of work that's been, that's been talking about the idea of threat and competition. So the idea that when there's a group that you're not a part of, if you feel like you're in competition for resources, then you're much more likely to, to dislike them. So for example, I mean, especially in the States, you hear this and some, some here too, but the idea that immigrants are coming to steal our jobs, right? That perception, that perception is that there's this limited amount of resources and they're coming, and if they come in and take resources, it's a zero-sum game. It takes away resources from us. And so 
we definitely look at things like that. The other thing is that we call those realistic threats, but there's also the idea of symbolic threats. So symbolic threats are when you feel like people of a different group are threatening your values. So, so if they're coming in, like, for example, if someone's coming in and they have, you know, different values than you or, th- or their, cultural, their cultural experiences are different and you're afraid they're going to d- diminish what your values are. And so we look at this as definitely these feelings of threat as one of the things that lead to prejudice. Mm. So changing gears a little bit, uh, kind of talking about some local involvement stuff about like uh, these immigrant relations that you seem very, uh, very dedicated to. I know you for a long time, so it's very big. But um, uh, I volunteer for a group that Kelly's in charge of called I Am London. And it's a kind of committee to raise awareness of like successful immigrant stories. And I would like to hear more about it. Okay, well, to start, I think I should talk about the sort of parent organization. Now, you, you need to bear with me. There's a lot of words here. But I'm part of the, local, the London and Middlesex Local Immigration Partnership, which is this really, really cool organization that, that has settlement services and academics and members of the immigrant community all come together to sort of plan on how they can make London a more welcoming city. Now, there's a bunch of sub-councils that take care of things like education and employment, but I'm on the sub-council called Inclusion and Civic Engagement. So the idea is we want to make immigrants who come to London feel like they're included and figure out ways that they can get civically involved in the community. And so that sort of stems, all of that is the reason why we came up with the idea of I Am London. I Am London is a social media campaign. And again, as Tristan said, the idea is to celebrate the diversity of London. I've heard people tell me that London's not a very diverse city, but you haven't gotten out into the ethnocultural communities if you think that's true, because there's lots of really great diversity in London. And the point of the campaign is to show you that these are, that, that immigrants come to London and they're your teachers and your doctors and they're your small business owners and they aren't just here, they make up the fabric of the city. And so, it's, as I said, it's a social media campaign, and this year it's going to run from June 4th to July 1st. And um, just a little shout-out, you can, you can follow us on Twitter at I-M-L-D-N-O-N-T, or you can check out the blog where we're going to post all these profiles of the really cool people that we've gotten to meet at imlondon2015.blogspot.ca. And we're having a launch party on June 4th, which is going to be really exciting. It's at the Central Library, and you can find information about that on our blog so sorry to do the little plug, but it's a really cool project. No, that's awesome. And um, for all of our listeners out there, I think Ramina is over there tweeting about everything that was just mentioned as we speak. So if you do follow us on Twitter, all of that information will show up on the Twitter feed. Speaking of which, I believe Ramina is actually going to be tweeting some stuff for I'm London later. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people getting involved with the project here. So um, you're in a friendly environment. <laughs> so tell us a little more, like, what, what, uh, what excites you about I'm London? I think for me, the best part is that I just get to meet really cool people. Tristan and I went out and did some of the interviews. And what's great is we're hoping to be able to to make them into podcasts and possibly put them on the radio over the summer. So hopefully you guys get to hear some of it if you want. I would encourage you to tune in. But the coolest thing is to just get to hear the stories. People have such great stories about how they ended up in London and how they make their communities, how they, you know, make London home. And I think one of the lessons that I've learned from all of them is it, you just need to get out and meet people and volunteer. All of these people volunteer in tons of organizations, and they have these like great networks of people and these communities. And um, so that's the thing that I've taken away from it. I've gotten to just meet really cool people. Yeah, so um, 
What would you suggest then about, say, graduate students here at Western? A lot of them don't take the opportunity to kind of get to know this city that we spend all these years in. So could you, uh, what do you, how do you think that um, a graduate student should start with getting their feelers into the city? Well, I was lucky enough to be able to join this this immigration partnership, which is re- directly related to the work I do. But there's tons of organizations in London doing work on all sorts of things. So you, it, if you just take a look, you can find an organization that's working on something that you care about and just contact them. You know, I sit on this sub-council, and I just contacted them, and they were happy to have me. Oftentimes, you know, we have, as grad students, we have skills that the community needs and so just going and volunteering our time you get to meet people and you know i've been in london now four years and even though i just i'm just i spend most of my time on the university campus this has given me opportunity to really make london feel like home for me too which i've really appreciated quick shout out to frontier college if you want to get involved uh we interviewed frontier college a few weeks ago maybe a few a month and a half or so i can't remember i can't keep track of time but that they had great uh, volunteer opportunities as well here in the city of london using your skills in education to help out the community so what are your next steps <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> i don't know i am um, hopefully defending my phd in the next few we- few months not weeks wow um but the plan after that, I'm not so sure. I, I've been teaching classes at King's and at Western, and I enjoy that quite a bit, and I will probably keep doing that. But I'm starting to look at jobs probably in maybe the nonprofit sector, places that I can use you know, my research background in a more applied, you know, directly applicable setting, helping the community. So we'll see. I don't know what's cool. next. Cool. Plans to stay in Canada or back to America? That's the hope. I want to stay in Canada. I like, I like Canada quite a bit. Yeah, because uh, uh, a few months ago we had another we had another guest on who were speaking about life after grad school. Uh, your former roommate, and um, we also uh, we have Tyson here who is just about to kind of who's uh, debating stepping out and entering this like post grad school life. So um, and you're just about doing it yourself and you're forming some strategies. Like, what's um? Would you have any advice for someone who's facing the big end of the PhD? Facing the end, I don't know if I have any advice. Facing the beginning, I do have some advice. One of the things that I did is I decided early on what skills I wanted to leave grad school with. I realized that, you know, the tenure track track job is elusive. I don't know. You know, it was always sort of the hope, but I wasn't sure if that was going to be what I was going to do. And so I decided there was certain skills that I thought I would need to get some, some kind of nonprofit job or to work in the community. For example, I decided I wanted qualitative research skills. I wanted grant writing skills. There were a few skills I decided, and then I sought opportunities to do that. And I think that was has been really helpful. The other big piece I, of advice I have is just take advantage of opportunities. Just anytime something comes up, say yes more than you say no. Although, I, you know, that gets me in trouble sometimes <laughs> when I'm doing a million things at once. But I... You know, you never know what's going to come from a cool opportunity. So, and one other really cool thing, uh, kind of related to that, strategize your PhD. Um, we haven't had anyone come on to talk about uh, the teaching certificate mm. that you have finished recently and you've been doing throughout your PhD. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and like whether you suggest it to others? Yeah. So I, I did a lot of a lot of programs with the Teaching Support Center here at Western, and I was a big fan. Uh, you learn a lot of strategies about how to engage with students in, a, in sort of new and in, innovative ways. The face of teaching in, uh, in undergraduate and graduate 
levels is changing. It's going to be less uh, that uh, sorry. It's going to be less about people just pushing knowledge into people's brains and more about facilitating knowledge. And so you learn a lot of really cool opportunities for how to engage students. And so yeah, I completed the certificate in teaching and learning here, and I think it was a great opportunity. And I would suggest it to anybody. Um, all right, so um, some interesting stuff is going on. Now, um, how about we ship back to I of London? Now, um, this is not your first time running the campaign. It's a yearly campaign. And a lot of graduate students, I mean, um, there's some students here who are going through their exams, and like the city largely empties out in the summer, as many grad students would know. So how, have, how has it been watching the campaign grow year on year? It's been it's been great. So this is the third year of the campaign. The first year I just was sort of tangentially involved. Uh, last year was the first time I ran it, and it was pretty difficult because I didn't have a lot of I didn't have a whole lot of help. But this year I have a great team of people who are doing a really good job, uh, and I think it's gonna be it, it's gonna be pretty big this year. And I'm really excited about it. I'm really happy to be a part of it. I'm wondering. I'm kind of moving out from the I'm London. Um, I'm just curious of what, I guess, made you move from the States over here to Canada, because that's a huge um, <laughs> step, really, to move to a different country to pursue graduate studies. What made you do it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's less of a huge step when I'm only, I'm only six and a half hours away from home. So culturally, it, it is different, for sure. But um, geographically, it wasn't it wasn't as big a move. But I mean, I kind of I ended up here like a lot of people do. You just send out a bunch of applications for grad school, right? And you see who who is interested. And my super, my current supervisor wanted me, and I thought the work she was doing was really really cool. And I I really relished the idea of moving to Canada and living in a new place for a while. And I'm glad I did because it's been great. So, sorry to uh, flip one of your own questions back on you, but how is Canada better than the United States? <laughs> <laughs> if it uh, is. Uh, if it let's is, be fair, of course. Let's be fair. That, the, there's a lot of great things about the U.S., but I think that what I like about Canada is I get the feeling that the government cares more about their citizens. I mean, just in terms of, like, social programs and stuff, I mean, you know, we don't make tons of money as grad students, but I feel like Canada does a lot of things to sort of ease that burden. And you know, it just in terms of things like not having to worry about health care as well. Um, and I really love the idea that Canada is multicultural and that it's trying to be multicultural and that that's actually written into law. And I think that's, that's great. Yeah, it's an, old, uh, it's an old Trudeau thing from the 70s, which is uh, interesting because like, people kind of might think it's older than it actually is. It's actually only about 40 years old and now we have another Trudeau running uh, that's uh, I guess like one thing I'd be curious to hear about is like you've seen some American elections now there's a Canadian one uh, I'd be interested if you um, maybe could muse as someone who's seen both sides of the border like uh, on the, the differences between the, the two things especially because it plays a lot into the nationalism patriotism <laughs> thing so I'm excited to sit through my first federal election here. I think it's interesting because, you know, we're, we're already gearing up for the 2016 presidential election in the states, and it's, you know, a year and a half more or more out. Uh, but here, you know, there's that limit. So I haven't seen, even though we know there's going to be an election this year, I haven't heard very much about it. And so that's a huge difference, I think. Just there's not as much, 
there's in the U.S. It's kind of like a spectator sport almost watching elections, and so I think that's a big difference. I feel like it turns into that here once. Uh, everybody sits down, or at least I used to sit down with my family election night and watch as, you know, the entire, all the results came in from every different region in Canada. So it turns into a spectator sport, I feel, but it's uh, just one evening of spectator sports rather than this drawn-out campaign that you usually see in the U.S. Right, yeah, I'm excited for that night. I'm excited to watch the Canadian returns and see how it's different than, I, I always have U.S. election parties, so we'll do a Canadian election party this year. Yeah. Uh, what I would find fun about it is, like, there's like, maybe this like this is like I, I'm I was kind of pre- uh, prompting you for this question, as someone who does patriotism nationalism as like an idea that um, our elections seem much less polarized and there's a lot more um, mud being thrown. I'm wondering if that has to do with this um, this positive like this patriotism versus nationalism dichotomy. And I'm I'm interested like if maybe I know you don't you're not going to have numbers to back you up, but if you might be able to hypothesize with me on. Uh, where, where you think that fits? I actually, I don't know if that's related, but I do know that there, the breakdown of patriotism and nationalism tends to be quite different here than it does in the States. Uh, nationalism is much more important to Americans, I think, than it is to Canadians. Although it's interesting, I once uh, heard somebody say that when the nationalism in the States is sort of based on thinking that we're more powerful than other countries. But Canada, I don't mean this as an insult, but Canada has a bit of a moral superiority. So Canada tends to think of itself as better in terms of human rights and better in terms of environment and that sort of thing. So I think if we do have nationalism in Canada, it looks a little bit different. Yeah, as long as you don't look at the reserves. <laughs> yeah. well, well, they're trying to get a little better about that, right? Tax breaks and all that jazz. <laughs> None of us can be perfect, you know. So then moving onwards, how would you say that... Uh, your going, your academic goggles are going to be on for um, like what are you going to look for in the Canadian election? I'm definitely interested in politician rhetoric. I think that's where it comes up, where my nationalism and patriotism comes up the most. Listening to the way that politicians talk about their country, you know, whether they're using this positive patriotic language like "I love Canada, it's a great country," or whether they're using this more nationalistic like "Canada does this better than other countries" and that sort of thing. Because if my results hold true, it's possible that the rhetoric that people are using, whether it's the media or politicians, can have a big impact on how we view immigrants and how we view people who are outside of our in-group. And so I think that's what I'm going to watch for. Excellent. All right. I um, I think we're all getting a little (laughs) sleepy. So uh, let's um, let's wrap up. Thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It It was great to be here. And uh, you guys out there, this is GradCast. We're going to be uh, keep doing the radio show every other week here on CHOW 94.9. See us in two weeks. We, if you can't get enough of this wonderful show, which, I mean, I can't, um, we actually run a weekly podcast, which you can go and check out at CH... Uh, sorry, no, that's not true. Um, at gradcastradio.ca. And there you can find a weekly show. And we have a couple of weeks now where we're going to have some shows you will not be able to hear on the radio uh, we have the episode of Caroline Strang coming out tonight, so it'll be really exciting. And um, that's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio. And look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com. And it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. 
We'll see you guys next week. 